you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has gone for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be together and to look into your word. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give strength and help both in the proclamation and in the hearing. And Father, we pray that today faith would come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, God has been pleased to reveal himself to us in the pages of the Bible. And if you study the Bible, you realize that God has revealed himself largely by way of telling a story, history, biography. In the pages of the Bible, God speaks to people. He saves them from their enemies. He saves them from their fears and he saves them from their sins. He makes promises and then he tells the history and the story of how he kept those promises. Now this way of revealing is obviously by design. God could have simply given to us an alphabetized systematic theology or a series of position papers on a host of moral and theological topics. And when we get something approximating that, that is a long section dealing with, uh, with theology or with ethics, such as the giving of the law, it comes to us in the midst of narrative or of story. There are people and mountains and prophets wherein God speaks and reveals himself and his will. Now we could ask the question, why does God do that? Why did he do that? Why did he choose to reveal his ways and his salvation in the way of history? Well, we may not have all the answers to that, but certainly we can say it is in part certainly to help us in our own life history. For our lives are not lived in an intellectual or morally neutral setting. 
Our faith is lived out amidst the struggles and trials and temptations that are part and parcel of a cursed world. And we need to know, again, not just that God is merciful, that's theology, but the history is that he has been merciful to people like us. We do not simply say that God is faithful and state that in a vacuum, but we refer to history and to biography to demonstrate that faithfulness, stories that speak of his goodness and that show us that he not only makes promises, but he keeps promises in real history so that we who live today can be rooted and grounded in a certain hope. Now, I remind you that this closing section of Hebrews 6 is doing two things. It is moving us back into the central argument that the preacher is making about Jesus and the high priesthood of Jesus and how it is like unto the priesthood of Melchizedek rather than that of Aaron. But he is also grounding us afresh in the main theme of the whole book, which is persevering faith rooted in the beauty and glory of Jesus. And he reminds, you are not the first generation to struggle with the promises of God. What was unsettling them? Why were they contemplating leaving off Christ? It was a struggle with the promise of God. And he's reminding them, you're not the first generation to look at the promise and then look at your circumstance and ask, in the words of Psalm 77, 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? So as the preacher here, as I I call him, for those of you visiting, uh, this is called in chapter 13, a word of exhortation. And so uh, I refer to this as a sermon. So the writer is the preacher. I'll call him the preacher or the writer. As the preacher moves his argument back toward the priesthood of Christ, he also reminds them that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, and that those who stand upon the promise see the promise. That is, they eventually uh, inherit the promise just as Abraham did. And calling his readers to diligence, he said that they should have imitated those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Some of those who were worthy of imitation would have been men and women that they know people in their own congregation but others are those scattered throughout history the heirs of the promise remember abraham and his heirs his immediate heirs isaac and jacob and then the long list of faithful men and women who believed that god could do things that seemed so impossible that history as we have reminded ourselves is our friend The faithfulness of God and the steadfastness of those who suffered and maintained their hope without quitting helps us when the ground beneath our own feet begins to give way. So today we're going to finish chapter 6 and laying the ground for working into the exposition of Christ as a high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. I, I want to work through three things. I want to say something, first of all, about our identity, secondly, our security, and then finally, our hope. Let's look briefly then at our identity. 
And it is found for us in the words of verse 18. He speaks here of two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. I touched on this briefly last time, but I want to return to this in regard again to who we are. And in touching on this, we're asking the question, why did we come to Christ? So I've been asking some questions lately. I've been uh, pairing some questions together. Uh, And uh, last week, I asked these questions in the PM service. How did you become a Christian? And then how do you know you are a Christian? And, and, And we saw that there are some parallels, but they're also answered in different ways. How did you become a a Christian? The answer is because by God's grace, I have looked to Jesus and Jesus alone for my righteousness. But how do you know you are a Christian? Well, that's rooted to some degree in the first, that is, well, because I have looked to Jesus for my righteousness. But the Bible also tells us that we ought to expect that there will be works fit for or meet for repentance. And therefore, I'm to make my calling and election sure, not only by rooting myself afresh in the gospel, but also by pursuing that holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask two additional questions. And the first is this, why did you come to Christ? And then the second is, why do you cling to Christ? Why did you come to Christ? And whether you came to Christ last month or last decade or last century, think back to why it is that you came to Christ. And I think that we all have at least this answer, if we are Christian, is that we came to him so that he would save us from the wrath of God due to our sins. Right? That's why he came to Christ. At some point, by God's grace, you saw yourself in the light of the mirror of God's law, and you saw that you were a sinner deserving of hell, and that you needed someone to pay for your sins, a payment you could not pay, and to grant you a righteousness you did not possess. We needed Jesus to cancel our debt and also give to us the merit of his righteousness. And and that's the essence of the gospel. That's what we mean by good news. Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus lived a perfect life and he will impute to us his righteousness. That is good news. Why did you come to Jesus? I was afraid of the wrath of God. Why did you come to Jesus? I didn't want to go to hell. Now I'm going to ask this question. Why do you continue to cling to Christ? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 45, 46 years in my case. I mean, hasn't he already saved you from the wrath to come? Why do you keep coming to him? Why do you keep looking to him, hoping in him when heaven has already been promised to you? Especially when you consider that life in Christ is often beset with various difficulties and trials and temptations. You will suffer persecution if you seek to live godly in Christ Jesus. Living in Christ means that you are the recipient of uh, of spiritual warfare. So why do you cling to him? Why do you hold fast to him? And the answer to this question generally focuses 
on the worthiness and loveliness of Christ. You come to see that in a sense that had you known now what you knew then, that you would have trusted him not only as a savior, but you would have come to him because of his own inherent glory and majesty. That there is no one like him. He alone has the words of eternal life. Blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and power and riches are found in him. Now this book is focusing upon why you cling to Christ. Why you can't let him go. But it has to begin with this first part. This essential identity. And it is only after we have fled to Jesus for refuge that we can then behold the glory and beauty and majesty of his person. Again, the whole of the book focuses on the second, his worthiness as a means of perseverance. This is why you don't give up, why you don't walk away. But the preacher wants to remind you of a time that your soul was in deep distress. Do you remember that? Do you remember when the law of God went from, as you looked at him, it might have been a time when you looked at the law of God and you thought, I'm a pretty good person. And then suddenly that law became your accuser. And you looked into the word and you did not find solace, but you found condemnation. And you felt the guilt of your sins and the ugliness of your iniquities. And you wanted to be forgiven and cleansed and delivered from hell. You wanted to know that you could pillow your head that night believing that you would enter glory when you died. And just as someone in danger will go behind the walls of a citadel or a fortress, so you ran to Jesus for refuge and for safety. And this act forever, and I do mean forever, by God's grace defines us. It's the day that changed us in this world and changed us in the world to come. It was the day that we left off our sin in the world and we went behind the wall and joined ourselves to the Savior and to all those who were also behind that wall by grace. So that this is our mutual story and this is our mutual song. We are those who to Jesus for refuge have fled. Now it is only those who have the security and hope that I'm going to speak on. You'll never know this security and you'll never know this hope if you've never fled to Jesus for refuge. But if you have fled to Jesus for refuge then these things are yours. So let's consider secondly now our security. Imagine being on a a large battleship or a destroyer and the word comes that the anchor is gone. Somehow the anchor, or in these cases, the anchors, they're gone. You're in the midst of the sea And the anchors have failed or they're gone. Well, it would strike, I would imagine, imaginable, unimaginable terror into your heart. You'd want to get off that vessel because that vessel, apart from an anchor, 
becomes a source of terror. An anchor is what is dropped into the sea and that holds a vessel and its occupants there. It holds them fast. So that without the anchor, the ship or the vessel and its occupants are left to drift or to be driven into great danger by the winds and the waves. Now, in the early church, this was one of the three or four main symbols that Christians utilized. Things like a dove or a cross or the fish, the old Good old fish that was used then and that is used now by Christians, but also the imagery of the anchor. The anchor was one of the symbols. This is the only place in the scriptures where this language is used. But it was so rooted, and the imagery was so powerful in the minds of the early Christians that this became one of the great symbols of their faith. Now, in the text before us, we have two questions that need to be answered in regard to the anchor. Now, I'm going to answer the third in a moment. There's a third, but I'm going to save it for the last point. We want to consider what is being anchored and where is the anchor moored or where does the anchor go? Okay, so first of all, what is being anchored or to ask it another way, what needs to be anchored? What, what, what we want to be anchored in our lives are pleasant circumstances. But that's not what's promised here. In fact, you can't ever have that. There is no such thing as anchoring our circumstance. What's being, what's being anchored? Look at the text. The answer is our souls. Our inner man. Our inner being, our inner selves, our inner person. If you have fled to Jesus for refuge, your soul, and this is the argument of the text, is anchored in heaven. Now, this is very encouraging, particularly in light of, remember, all that we studied in the first part of, of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is both one of the most unsettling and one of the most settling passages in the scriptures. So don't just, when you think of, of Hebrews 6, don't just think, oh no, Hebrews 6, I got to question my salvation. Hebrews 6, apostasy. No, Hebrews 6 is also certainty. Hebrews 6 is also anchor. And what's being anchored again is our soul. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, among other places that we have, and puts it in this language there, we have an outward man and we have an inward man. Or an inward person. We have an immaterial life, or excuse me, we have a material life, all of us have as people, of sight and sound and smells and taste and touch, the life lived in the flesh, day to day activity, labor, etc. But we possess as human beings an inner person that is immaterial and that is everlasting from the time of its inception or conception so we're not eternal as god is eternal but we are from the point of our existence everlasting and when i say eternal i mean we, we we're not infinite in in both directions as god is there was a there was a time that we were not but from the time that we became who we are we possess a soul that 
that will never die. That's what I'm saying. Death, James tells us, is the separation of these two things. The body without the soul is dead. The soul, inward, is the place of our thinking and our emotions, though tied in some degree to things like our brain. But the place of our thinking and our emotions is our soul, the place of our faith, as well as our doubts and our fears and our anxiety. And though the curse touches our outward person, in fact, that text I referenced uh, deals with that. Our outer man is decaying. And everybody over 40 says, I know. Our outer man is decaying the aches and pains and diseases of this present age. But the curse, when we think of the curse, we think not only in terms of the outward, but the inner. It affects our inner man. It's a place of our sin and our rebellion or our fears and our anxieties and perplexities, our sinful passions. It's a place where lies are created, lust and anger, doubts, the warring within all takes place within the inner man. It is here that we are so unstable. Our outer man is decaying. And yes, to look at a picture of me. Now, for some of you, you're at the age, let's say if you're between 25 and 35-ish. A picture of you when you're 28 and a picture of you when you're 32 probably doesn't look all that different. But you get to a place, again, we've talked about this, when you need to start having your your picture taken more often you know, uh, if, if, if people are going to recognize you because we're changing, we're changing. There's an, there is an instability to the outer man, but this instability that we feel in life is much more related to the inner. It's in the soul where we are so up and down. Faithful one moment, unfaithful another. Living in the fear of God in the morning and our devotions and enslaved to some lust in the evening. Loving and stable one moment, angry and bitter the next. Happy and content and then full of turmoil. And this is why your soul, this is why every soul needs an anchor. Every soul needs an anchor, but not every soul has an anchor. Every soul needs it. Listen, whoever you are here today, you need an anchor. You need something to fix you in position, something to aid you in the midst of the fight of this world. And what a terrible thing to have a soul that has all of that anxiety and all of that turmoil and all of that sin and all of that longing and all of that desire, but to have no anchor, to have no anchor, to be, to be given a boat, to be given a boat without a paddle or without a sail or without a motor is one thing. But to be given a vessel that has no anchor, nothing to root you or ground you is a sad reality that billions live with and that some dozens perhaps are living with right now in this room. You have a soul, but you have no anchor. 
What needs to be anchored is your soul. Now, the second issue is where is the anchor? Where is your soul fixed? So even for some who are Christians, I'll tell you sometimes the answer to that question is it's in providence and circumstance. That's what grounds you. It's the stability of providence. For some of you, it's other people. If you, if you were to answer honestly and say, hey, where's your anchor? You might say, well, you know, it's in my, my, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my family, my friends. Well, what's the problem with that? What if you try to anchor yourself in providence? Because right now, providence, for many of us, is, is perhaps quite fair. I don't, I don't mean in the sense of unfair. I mean it's, it's quite nice. It's good. Life's good. Job's good. Family's good. Marriage is good. Life's good. Whatever the case may be. You got money. You're relatively healthy. Well, for some of you, says, well, brother, it was last week, but it's not this week. Ah, see, that's the problem with providence. And that's the problem with circumstance. Well, you say, well, therefore, I will root myself in in others. They will be my constant. Because they're always going to be there. No, they're not. Even the best of people are bound to disappoint you. Even the best of people are sometimes unavailable. And so he says, our anchor is not only in heaven, but it is behind the veil. Now, every Jew to whom he was writing understood this analogy. He's going to go on in chapter 9 to talk temple tabernacle, and and whether it was the temple or the tabernacle, tabernacle was the uh, movable sanctuary of worship. The temple was the more permanent one, but... It was not permanent. It was more permanent, but not permanent. And in that temple of old, and we've talked about this before, so if you picture the temple, this building, if you entered into it, now most people never went into this at all. They stood outside of it. But if you went in, you were in what was called the holy place. And there would be the lamps burning and the lavers and there would be the uh, what was called the table of presence that would have, it sounds odd, I imagine, for some, it would have bread on it, loaves of bread, called the show bread. And it was intended to intimate that God's people had fellowship with God. But there was a section that was cordoned off. It had a veil or had a curtain. And behind that curtain stood for years the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where there was a um, uh, statue, as it were, of, of angels with their wings facing toward each other, this was called the mercy seat. And it was there once a year. 
that the high priest and only the high priest would enter and he would sprinkle blood on what was called the Day of Atonement. That's what, this is the imagery. That mercy seat, it's an interest. in some ways you could have called it perhaps the seat of holiness because of all of the fearfulness and the blood that was associated with blood being spilt because God is holy, but forgiveness being offered because God is also merciful. And God's righteousness and justice and mercy meet there at the mercy seat behind the veil. Now our translation gives, and you'll note here that that this is the reason it's in, if you have a new King James, that it's in italics is not for emphasis, it's because the translators supply it. Because the idea was that behind the veil, there was a sense of the manifest presence of God. That's where the presence was. So if you entered into the temple, you were getting close to the presence. If you went behind the veil, there was the presence. And the writer is saying, that's where our anchor is. It's in the place where blood is offered. It's in the place where the high priest went. It's in the place where God is reconciled to his people. It's in the place of the holiness of God and the faithfulness of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. That's what's behind that veil. Our hopes of being one with God and reconciled to God for for thousand years and more lay behind the veil and he says that's where our anchor is it's a place where jesus has gone before us verse 20 and we'll deal with this more fully next time where the forerunner has entered for us even jesus having become high priest why could he go there because he was high priest That's why he could go behind the veil and bring his own blood. Now, God willing, we'll make our way to Hebrews chapter 9 together in the months ahead. But Hebrews 9, and I'm not going to read all, but I will read verses 11 and 12. But Christ has become high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It's the place where Jesus went for you. And that anchor is not just in the presence of a God of burning holiness. It's anchored where God's wrath has been pacified with the blood of his own son. Yes, it's where God is, where God dwells and sits and where God rules. But where God also loves and forgives and shows mercy. And we ask, what place could be more secure than his presence? And this is why we read in verse 19 that we have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. The fact that you have an anchor (laughs) 
is not in and of itself necessarily a comfort. Because an anchor needs to be anchored. You can have it and you can drop it, but if you just drop it into water, it drags. But if it is latched onto something solid and sure, then you find your security. Again, throw the anchor simply into water and it does nothing. It needs to secure itself to the bottom. It needs to bite into sand and rock in order to hold. And our anchor is in the very presence of a reconciled God because that's where Jesus went behind the veil. Not year by year, over centuries and millennia, but once and for all to purchase our redemption and to give us a place where our soul can be anchored. And that brings us to consider finally our hope, and this is really dealing with the identity of the anchor. So what is the anchor? Well, the anchor is our hope. Our hope cast into heaven where Jesus is gone. So we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, simply by way of reminder. What is hope? What's hope? You can have two responses to upcoming events. One that is optimistic, that, that, that's hope. And one that's dread, and that's you know, pessimism or fear. Hope is a confident expectation of good rooted in, biblically, rooted in promise. And that's the point that he's been making in this section. That we can have hope because God's promise is so certain. Remember, that's the argument that he was making. God not only is a promising God, God is a God of covenant. God swears. God takes an oath. God not only says, I'm going to do this. You see, what we need to do because we are untrustworthy, we are bound by contracts and oaths. But you swore. You said you would. You put your hand on a Bible or you signed a contract. You swore by something greater than yourself to end disputation. And God, ministering to the weakness of our faith, not only promises, but swears, swears by himself that this is true. Therefore, God's people on the basis of that can live with a hope, a secure hope in the presence of God because of the faithfulness of the God who promised. So hope is something that is before us. Hope is in what is to come. Now, it can be rooted in the past, but it is, it has present dimensions, but we, we hope, the Bible says, for what we do not have. Because if we have it already, we wouldn't hope for it. So when, you, when you're hoping, kids, hope, kid, you know, Christmas time, birthday, what do you want to get? Well, it's all full of hope. But once the boxes are opened, you know what's there. And what's not? You don't, you don't hold your toy and say, oh, I hope I get this. No, you already have it. Now, for hope again to be hope, we must be confident of the promise or promises. And in order for that to happen, we need to have confidence in the word of the one who made the promise. 
Can they do what they promise to do? Again, some make promises that they intend to keep, but they have no power to keep. I'd love to say to my wife and children and grandchildren, look, I'll always be there for you. I'd love to be able to look at Eleanor and my upcoming grandson and say, Papa's always going to be there. Papa's not always going to be there. I can't make that promise. In the context, in order to have hope of fulfillment, a person, again, will take an oath based upon someone or something greater than themselves. And this is what God did for Abraham, to convince Abraham of his sincerity and to put faith in him and confidence in him that God would do what he had promised to do. And God made that promise to him, and then he made it to his heirs, to Isaac and to Jacob and all who would follow in the faith of Abraham. And God swore by himself to bless and multiply Abraham, and he made that promise at a time when it seemed so impossible. That promise was ultimately about one who would bring blessing to the nations. And for those living at, that time, at the time when Hebrews was written or when that sermon was preached, they were the first people, the first generation in all of history to know how faithful God was. Their fathers and mothers had said and prayed and longed in their sorrow and in their pain and in their confusion, one day the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ will come. And for the first time in history, from the promise in the garden that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, finally a people were alive who could say, he kept his promise. Not just the hope, he will keep his promise. He kept his promise. And they no longer said Christ will come. They said Christ has come. He lived a life of righteousness. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. By his stripes we have been healed. He rules and reigns in righteousness. And now we say, and a day will come that he will make all things new. So that there does remain for the people of God a hope anchored and rooted in the presence of God. And our hope points backward. He has come and it points forward. He will come again. So that we anchor ourselves in the certainty of God's promise And when all that God has promised yet to be seems, as scoffers would say, foolishness and pie in the sky, we say, well, it sounded like that to a 90-something-year-old man and woman without a child, too. And it sounded that way to everyone who died in faith, waiting and hoping for what was promised. 
And part of what should have rooted these believers who were contemplating leaving off Christ is, brethren, you've seen it. The promise has come. Others long for the promise. Where is the Messiah? These could say the Messiah has come and he is Jesus of Nazareth. And they could also say, he has come and he will come again. Do you have a hope that that will come to pass? Are there days when as you contemplate your life and your circumstances and the world and the times in which we live, That you find yourself longing for a world that will be made new. Where there are no more sorrows and no more pain and no more tears and no more death. And where there is no more sin by you or by others. And you say to yourself, what holds you fast sometimes Amidst the curse and the pain of a cursed world is the hope that there will be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That I will see him and I will be made like him. And he will conquer his foes. And he will put an end to all that offends. It's here. What the Bible calls our blessed hope. And again, when it seems to us that all of this is is mere whimsy and wish and a pipe dream, you remind yourself that God has sworn by himself. And he swore a thousand years before Christ came that there would be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that David would have a son who would be his son and yet his Lord. And it was a thousand years before there were a group of people who said, that high priest, because he swore and he would not relent, you will be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You'll not come from Aaron's line. You'll come from Judah's line. And you'll be a priest that will fulfill a promise I made one time a thousand years ago. Well, he hasn't just promised us one time. He's promised and he's promised and he's promised. And so when John is contemplating the coming of the new heavens and earth, the statement comes right For these things are faithful and true. That is so that the people of God can bank their hope on this. He has sworn for a hundred years and then two hundred years and three hundred and six hundred and a thousand years. And for two thousand years we have looked to the skies. And we remember that the promise, again, made to Abraham took some 2,000 years almost to come to pass. But he had sworn. And a faithful people held on to that and believed and prayed and waited. 
And every time we bury someone, we remind ourselves as believers, this isn't the end. And you drive away from the cemetery, which is the most still place seemingly in the world, and remind yourself one day it'll be the most active. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we preach to each other, brethren, this is his body and this is his blood. He's forgiven us. He's reconciled us. Hang on. But one day we'll eat and drink in the kingdom. Every time we take it, we remind ourselves, maybe this is the last time. And we will eat and drink in his presence. And every time there is another heartbreaking situation and every time fear or persecution comes upon the church, we sigh and we say and we pray, come Lord Jesus. And that hope that he will come, that this is not in vain, You need to know, he says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And what's the context of that? Because Jesus died and is risen and is coming as king. He is king. He will come as a conquering king. Therefore, nothing you do for him. You say, well, it's pointless. We went to the prison and nobody came. We went and we talked to sinners and nobody believed. We pleaded with mothers outside an abortion clinic and all of them killed their babies. It's all in vain. The preacher preaches and no one's converted. Sometimes you preach and those who are broken aren't comforted. And he goes home sometimes and and cries or is restless or sleepless and says, Lord, was it all in vain? Not if he's risen and not if he's coming. It's what allows us to labor, to know that we don't need to lose heart in doing what is good. For in due time, we will reap. But not to those who faint. Not to those who draw back, but to those who are anchored in hope in the presence of God. Where Jesus went as a forerunner and brought his blood. This is what stabilizes us when all around our souls give way. There is a solid rock and there is an anchor in the presence of the living God. So some of you here this morning have a soul and no anchor. And friend... Young or old, storms are coming that will shake you to the foundation of who and what you are. And it's happening to young people at a frightening, alarming rate in our country. So that what is it now the number one cause of death among young people is suicide. Because so often, Not in every case, but oh so often it's a soul and a storm and there's no anchor. 
Because what seems certain yesterday is uncertain today. And there is no bright hope for tomorrow. There is no thought that one day all this will be gone. And one day I will have cried my last tear and one day committed my last sin and one day I will be perfected in righteousness and one day righteousness will dwell in a new heavens and new earth. And that's why I can get up and why I can go. Because I don't know, my life has so much uncertainty, so much within it that would lead to, and what are the years ahead going to bring? Well, some good things, some bad things, ultimately death. Hardship for my kids, and you sit powerless. I can't heal it. But one day, no more death. One day, no more tears. One day, no more sorrow. One day, no more curse. My friend, that's an anchor. That's a soul that is steadfast, immovable, always able to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that their toil is not in vain. My friend, if you have a soul, but no anchor, you need to know there is an anchor. And it's this hope. This hope that God did what he said he would do, his first promise in the garden, that he would send a redeemer. And all the promises that came from that time through all of the prophets and all of the scribes so that one day a man would come and live and die. And we could say, God has been faithful. Embrace that one. Embrace that one and anchor your soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the joy that is ours as your people, knowing what Christ has done. We give you our thanks and we offer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.